Welcome to State of X on the Matt Brown Show, a three-part episode series covering the state of exponential technology live from London Tech Week. This is part two. Even though the concept of artificial intelligence has been doing the rounds since the 1960s, progress in graphics processing units as well as networking, together with the need for big data, has put the same into the focus of several companies. Due to a sudden increase in data from various applications as well as the Internet of Things and a requirement for real-time decision-making, artificial intelligence is fast becoming a main prerequisite and differentiator for several cloud providers. In the past, companies needed a lot of money as well as time to build up the infrastructure and technical know-how for AI-driven applications. Now, something called AI as a Service has minimized the development time drastically. So basically, you get AI off the shelf as per your business needs. AI as a Service promises to enable everyone, regardless of how much knowledge you possess, to reap the benefits of AI today and tomorrow. But in many cases, it's still a promise and not a reality. To get to the truth about the state of AI as a Service, I spoke to Elisabetta Castiglioni, the CEO of A1 Digital, a company who is on a mission to bring human and machines together to translate digital potential to business results. Okay. Hey guys, welcome back to State of X on Amazon Prime. With me today, I'm very privileged and honored to have the CEO of A1 Digital, Elisabetta. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Cool. So we're going to demystify the X here, which is from science to reality in the context of AI and machine learning. But before we dive into the meat and the potatoes, why don't you give us a little bit of the headline backstory about A1 Digital and your role there? Absolutely. So I am the CEO of A1 Digital and we serve enterprise customers in two ways. One, in making sure that they can deliver smart assets, that is anything, any object or any um, any other asset they might have, any infrastructure they might have uh, with IoT platforms and machine learning on top of it. And, um, and all of this runs on our secure cloud infrastructure. Okay, amazing. So Let's talk about from science to reality, right? I mean, you know, we're here at the AI Summit at Accelerated London Tech Week. You know, AI is pretty much everywhere. There's robots running around on the floor, you know, and so, but for the average business, for the average person, it's like AI is still something out there. You know, it's not really in reality. How, are, how is A1 Digital making that a reality sure. for businesses around sure. the world? Sure. Well, it has already happened. It's not. Uh, it's not anymore a question. Is this going to happen? And it is good that it is happening mm. because uh, really we can translate. We can apply. And, and we want to talk about machine learning. Machine learning is really the um, the part of AI that is really here and there. And we have a lot of use cases um, of machine learning as a service uh, where we're helping our customers uh, really realize business potential. So. I love that idea of machine learning as a service because it's like your first go-to as well. As an entrepreneur, as a tech startup, you have to build it yourself. When there's, you know, and then, of course, that comes with a whole bunch of pain, right? You know, where am I going to find data scientists? Where am I going to find good data? I'm now going to learn this whole thing around AI development and essentially enablement. Whereas you've got a platform that's pretty much done for you, right? So explain to us, what does it mean when yes. you say AI as a service? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's that's really the good news. Uh, you know, all these anxieties, am I going to be attractive for as a small and medium enterprise for all these data scientists who actually, um, anyway, are not very numerous? Um, the good news is you don't really need so many of them. Actually, you don't even need any of them. You need just um, a business, a very good business analyst that really understands your business and uh, and then you can work with people like us 
um, who will provide the platform, the platform experts, and uh, will work with you in conjunction with you. Um, and um, and the most important thing is really that you focus on on your business priorities. What do you get want to get out of it? Um, and and we we have many examples. For example, we have a company that um, uh, is in the energy trading sector. And those guys, um, they are required to put in bids, um, uh, auctions every day. And the question there was, can we predict actually the best price? And uh, and they were working obviously with their own specialists um, over many years, um, with a few people that had the domain knowledge. And um, and we worked with them on a machine learning as a service uh, uh, project, uh, by which then um, we were able basically applying our models, um, platform people from our side, business experts from their side, and we were in, within a few weeks our model was was able to outperform the human um, by more than 10%. Mm. And obviously predicting the price uh, of an auction, uh, 10%, it really goes directly that's, into the bottom line. That's a big deal. And, and so that is yeah. a huge, uh, that is a huge um, en uh, enabler actually for getting business results, better business results. This is what it is. Okay. There's no magic. Um, it's really, it's really working uh, together, bringing the, the technical side and the business side together, using the platform as a service to get these business outcomes. Okay. That's what it is. So let's talk more about some reality, right? So real-world examples. So you mentioned yeah. the energy example. Are there any um, consumer-facing examples yes. that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. We have many. Um, one what, of them, what are some like the top yeah, two or the yeah, best example you can yes, think of? Yeah, one of it would be uh, sales predictions. So we have another, ah. we have another, uh, another customer who is uh, in, in the whole. It's a wholesaler for food and, um, and beverages to the catering industry. And they wanted to, they have, you know, they, they have thousands of products and they have thousands of customers. And they wanted to know, um, is there a particular reason why uh, certain customers at some point decrease, uh, you know, the sale, the buying from us and go to a competitor? So applying machine learning, obviously, we could put um, a lot of um, other um, influencing factors in there. And but what you want to do with machine learning is you want to exclude the obvious. You you don't want to say, oh, no wonder in our in our region, for example, obviously November is a is a cold month. So in November you will not see much um, ice cream being sold. Obviously, you don't want to have a model that will tell you exactly that. That is, a, but you want to. <laughs> it's kind of logical. It's kind right? of logical. So you exclude isn't it? that. So stuff, that, okay. that you want to exclude. But yeah. you, you, you factor in many more factors, and then you are actually able, and, and this is what our model does. Uh, you basically have confidence intervals in which, um, in which sales of certain products um, will move, and as long as you know you are within those intervals. There's no, there's no problem. Mm. But whenever you, uh, you, you leave that interval, then there will be an, an alarm that will be triggered to the company saying, company X and Y is now behaving really differently from what we would predict them to expect, um, and therefore you need to do something about it. And obviously the human, and, and this is all about actually human and machines working together, because the human obviously will go to the other human, which is the sales guy and the purchaser and say, uh -huh. Is there something that we need to talk about? Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a lot of talk about data. Yeah. You know, bad data into an AI platform, not so great at predicting things. Great data, great output, right? Absolutely. So, but also more broadly, you think about data, right? Data was always a way to measure the past. Yeah. And now you can start to use data to predict the future. Yes. And I'm interested to get your expert opinion on the, where does the predictive power of AI begin to stop? 
you know what I mean? Like, let's take a consumer, for instance. We've got a whole bunch of data around consumers buying different things. So I know that you buy these 10 things in any given month more than anything else, right? Yeah. But then there's weather things and so on and so forth, as you described. Do you think AI is ever going to be able to fully predict human behavior? I hope not. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> no, and that that is really the beauty of it. And, and, and this is really come back to uh, human and machine. Yeah. So we don't want obviously the machine, you know, to, to take over at all. We actually want, uh, you know, want them to help us basically. And and I think this is really where the, the, the real, you know, differentiator of being human comes out. Uh -huh. Really, the you know, all the the, the emotional intelligence really. Yeah. Uh, that we would really want to preserve with the human beings. Do you think, you know, the whole narrative about AI and the singularity and, you know, the, the negative narrative around AI, you know, robotics, process yeah. automation, RPA, you know, going to steal yeah. all of our jobs, you know, automates everything in any industry. If it can be automated, AI will do yeah. that. And so it'll displace a whole bunch of people. Yeah. The counter argument to that, of course, is that when people are displaced, it's going to free them up to do other things like creative work. Do you know what I'm saying? And maybe yep. begin to yep. solve bigger problems and yep. free up our knowledge yep. capital and so on and so yep. forth. What, where do you stand? Yeah. You know, so we, 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 we think that digitalization and AI and machine learning, all of that is a force for good. So the, we, we really believe in the, in the, in the coexistence of, uh, you know, of the machines that will ease the work. And absolutely, you know, if we can free up actually capacity to do, to do more creative work. And, and in fact, even today, machine learning, uh, you can make the case um, that machine learning simulates your creativity because now with, with machine learning you can ask your data questions that maybe you didn't even think you would be able to ask before. Yeah. So th this is really the power of machine learning. Okay, so we're obviously here at Techcelerated London Tech Week. You gave a talk yesterday. Yes. Can you walk us through what your message was around your keynote? The message is really machine learning as a service. Uh, don't worry, um, obviously start now, um, but uh, don't worry about building up capacity, reinventing the wheel. You can buy machine learning as a service. Um, you can work with partners like us uh, who will provide that service with you. You as an enterprise focus on your domain knowledge, which is really uh, you know, the key, the essence of what it is about. And then we can work together, we can bring the tools and, uh, and, and focus actually on what uh, the outcome, what do you want, what is the business outcome that you want to get out of it and, uh, and, and working in partnerships okay. uh, will make it happen. So let's wrap this up. Why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Oh, because we, uh, you know, we take the world uh, to a to a different uh, place. Uh, you know, this is this is really the reason. You know, the, the, the digitalization presents so much opportunity, um, actually, for not only to enhance businesses, but also, you know, it's a force for good. Mm. That's uh, that's what keeps me, you know, going. Really. Uh -huh. Amazing, Elisabetta. Thank you for being on the show. Everyone communicates. Communicating with others gives us connection, control, and ultimately meaning in our lives. A key factor to successful communication is language. Language gives us the means and ways to share our own thoughts and ideas, desires, and wishes. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. As human beings, we are a remarkably gregarious species and thrive when we can exchange information and experiences. But unfortunately, there are limitations to how much we can communicate and collaborate with others, especially when we don't all speak the same language. I spoke with Burr Settles, the research director of Duolingo, a revolutionary application with over 200 million users. Hey guys, welcome back to State of X on Prime. I'm hugely privileged and honored to have with me Burr Settles, the research director at Duolingo. How's it, buddy? Thanks for having <laughs> me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm really thrilled to have you guys here specifically because I came across uh, the founder of Duolingo, Louis' uh, TED Talk many years ago, and the story which is fascinating, you know, having invented the capture for the internet and how that whole thing has now led to the current form of Duolingo. So, you know, fast forward to today, what do we need to know about Duolingo? So Duolingo right now is the largest uh, language learning platform in the world. Uh, there are hundreds of millions of people who are learning languages on Duolingo, uh, everything from English and Spanish to you know, Swahili and Irish. Really? Uh, are there lots of African languages on there as well? So far, uh, Swahili is, is the only uh, continental language. Uh, we're launching Arabic a bit later this year. Wow. Um, and you got 300 million users, apparently, something like that? Yep. Okay, so let's talk about AI. I mean, obviously, we're here at London Tech Week. Um, how are you guys using AI in the context of such a huge user base, all trying to learn languages, okay? Um, why AI, and what do you? what's the, the play there? Yeah, it's not an obvious connection, yeah, exactly. necessarily, like, yeah. but if you think about it, um, we like to talk about education as being uh, something that tears down barriers and gives people more access to opportunity, but in reality, the people with the most money afford the best education and, and, and it true. just propagates the, the problem. And we believe that AI is probably the best way to scale, until everybody has access to a great one-on-one -on -one tutor for on a subject, uh, AI enables us to scale it to everybody. So a good tutor has like three properties. Uh, they know the content really well, they know how to engage you with that content, and they have a, a way of getting inside your head mm. and, and understanding what you know and what you don't know and how well you know it and when you're likely to forget it so that they can you know, quiz you and drill you. Yep. Um, so we use AI for those three things, to build tools to help us build high-quality content, and then also to, to monitor the exercises you get right, what you get wrong, and, and build mental models of what you know so that we can personalize your learning experience. Yeah, it's interesting that because, you know, we all learn different things different ways. I don't know whether you're familiar with kinesthetic and visual and auditory and, 
etc etc olfactory you know the people i know that's not exactly how you would learn unless you're in the cooking space but um but point being is that we all learn differently so is your intention essentially to as you said to build like a mental map of an individual user of those 300 million and say right this is how you best learn a language and in the process of doing that speed up the learning process is that kind of what you're trying to do yeah exactly so it doesn't matter if you're like in south africa 20 percent of duolingo users are learning french why so though? some people what for some hell? reason what have it's you a done very to popular us? language <laughs> but uh it doesn't matter if you started uh if, if you're just starting with french or if you took french in high school you're you're gonna have a different starting point if you already learned spanish or something then uh french might be easier uh, so we're able, based on your response patterns, to pick up on that and, and tailor the experience directly to you. Are you also able to move people into, say, you know, alternative language that, that are potentially not their primary focus? So for instance, South Africans mainly learning French, and then through their modalities and the data essentially that you have, is your intention also to try and nudge them towards consuming and learning about other languages as well? Like Spanish. That's certainly something that we could do in the future. Okay, cool. Tell me something. What does the future of AI and education look like? Uh, it's a big question. Yeah. But I, you're, I mean, but out of all educators at scale using AI, you're probably the best guy to ask, right? So, what does it look like? You know, is AI going to be, um, you know, a true enabler of education at scale? What do we need to know? What's your view? I believe so. I mean, there's a lot of fear, I think, about AI replacing teachers, and and I don't think See, that's that's, that's, that's going to happen at all. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there are, there are hundreds of thousands of classrooms across the world using Duolingo, uh, and and oh, you mean fact, actually in the classroom? Yeah, in the class, they have classroom exercises really? built around. We also have a Duolingo for Schools platform that we built to help support oh, educators really? in this way. Amazing. And then, but also there. are thousands of schools in the United States, for example, with no foreign language programs. Uh Uh, So in the more rural areas where there's less access, uh, we have students learning enough Italian that once they go off to university, have learned enough to test into third or fourth semester and save thousands of dollars in tuition. Hmm. So these are the kinds of things that I think AI and technology at scale will enable education, not just in language learning space, but everywhere. So an interesting stat I came across literally last week was that in Africa, everybody now has a mobile phone, like a smartphone type thing. Maybe not a smartphone, but at least we're getting there. Whereas before it wasn't, in other words, what I'm trying to get to is it was access to the internet. Like they had shitty dumb phones, right? Mm -hmm. But they didn't have internet enabled phones. Um, And that's really powerful in the context of what you guys are doing and the emerging market of Africa, right? what, how do you see your role as an educator in emerging markets specifically? Um, I, I haven't given that particular question much thought. I mean, I know about one in every two people worldwide has some access to the internet. Um, and I've been to Haiti, for example, and volunteer um, mission trips and met people in a remote village that have no uh, electricity or running water, but they do get data signals and they have phones. And I've met people who have been learning English through Duolingo in really? these very remote areas. So it makes me very uh, pleased and proud to like play a small role in that kind of... Sure. Uh, so you mentioned educators, right? Uh, we've got a client, Eiffel Corp, they're um, one of the largest ed tech companies in Africa. Um, and so we do a lot of work in the ed tech space. There's a huge focus on enabling teachers to upskill themselves as it relates to digital education. 
Um, what are your words of advice to educators around the world as it relates to a proposition like Duolingo? So in terms of using Duolingo uh, in, yeah, in, in teaching or to or better themselves? Because both, that both, also happens. But it's both, right? It's, it's about the upskilling of yourself as an educator, right? Because that's kind of what you guys are augmenting. So because as a teacher, if I've got 50 students, I want to know that little Jimmy over there learns like this. Mm -hmm. or he has a, he's a bit dyslexic, so he learns like that. You know what I mean? You, you're working with a particular model of a child and then educating them. Uh, and that's what you're kind of solving at scale. But as an educator, looking at an, op an opportunity or a platform like Duolingo, how should they get involved? How should they see Duolingo um, as a partner, for instance? Uh, uh, so if you're a language educator, I would say look at Duolingo for Schools, schools.duolingo.com. Uh, we have dashboards. Uh, educators can create targeted lessons and assignments for their students. Uh, and in the future, I would like us to see, uh, I would like to see us take some of the, the AI that we've built, the, you know, those mental models of what's in your head, and augment those dashboards with more information. Uh, you know, so uh, this particular student is struggling with past tense conjugations. This student is struggling with something else. Uh, so it, it actually enables the teacher to get more insight into, uh, if, if you're a one-on-one -on -one tutor, you have enough experience with an individual student to get that kind of insight. If you have a classroom of 35 people, it's much harder. Yeah. So the, the AI can actually augment you and level up, you know, make give you, a you more educator, of a win right? window into what each student uh, yeah. needs. Great, it's fantastic. So you're going to have all this data from all over the world. What are you going to do with it? So we're using it in our own research. Uh, we also, just in, within the past three years or so, our AI team has published five peer-reviewed uh, research articles. Uh, and we've also released two large-scale research data sets with millions of examples of students doing exercises, what they got right, what they got wrong. And that has enabled more academics and industry people to analyze those data sets, publish more papers. And we're, we very much believe in, in helping move the field forward because there's actually not a whole lot of work uh, in AI for education at scale. Uh, so it, it's our hope that we can help further that. Very interesting. Bert, let's wrap this up. Why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Well, the academic in me I loves machine learning, um, language, and cognitive science. And there's probably you can count on one hand the number of companies where you can have a job that works in that intersection. And it's a big bonus that it's a company that can have so much impact throughout the world. <laughs> Fair. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having Cheers, me. Cheers, mate. Artificial intelligence has been described as the simulation of human intelligence by machines, especially computer systems. These processes involve learning, reasoning, and self-correction. In other words, artificial intelligence has the incredible ability to collect vast amounts of information. Intelligent machines use rule sets to approximate conclusions and through analysis of the outcomes, learn insights and correct their approach going forward. It could be argued that while AI is described as the simulation of human intelligence, it has far surpassed the capabilities and limitations of the human mind. So I met up with Bob Ducot, the Vice President of Artificial Intelligence and Robotics Process Automation at IFS, to explore the state of AI today. Uh, hey guys, welcome back to State of X. With me today is Bob Ducot. Hi. Please introduce yourself. What is your role? Uh, so I'm the VP of AI and Robotic Process Automation at IFS. So I'm in charge of bringing 
AI, machine learning, automation into our sort of traditional enterprise software products. Okay, cool. So IFS is not a small company, but no. compared to other you know incumbents within the ERP space, it's a challenger brand, right? That's correct. So how are you um, you know using AI to create a real key point of difference and ultimately by doing that capturing more market share? Sure. So we have a number of key verticals that we focus in. Uh, you know, we focus on manufacturing, we focus in aerospace and utilities. And the important thing for us is to provide solutions that our customers want that's going to make it easier for them to run their businesses. Um, so our focus is on demystifying and making it as easy as possible to consume AI-related solutions. We don't want to just give them a toolkit and say, off you go, do things yourself because often you know they might not have the experience the know-how they're beginning their journey they want to have something they can put into their processes and take advantage of AI's capabilities as easily as possible okay so we're going to talk about x in this case which is ai in the enterprise sure what is the general attitude and mindset towards ai are, 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 are you know enterprise clients uh, in your portfolio, are they open to working with AI or, or are they still quite ambivalent about it? Like how far down the garden path are we in that regard? I think they're very open to it. I think it's probably on the agenda of pretty much all of them. Um, but I think the, the thing is it has been for maybe a couple of years. We've gone through a little bit of a, a hype cycle because uh, AI has you know, delivered a number of things into our daily lives, but actually delivering it into the business, into the enterprise, it requires some pretty fundamental shifts. It needs to come from the top down. It requires a change of strategy, encourages you to, you know, collect your data, think about the data you're having. So I think a lot of companies have found it harder to get going than they would have thought originally. So we see a little bit of kind of reticence in terms of, well, you know, is AI really going to work for us? Are we in a position to do it? But generally, they're all they're all keen, but most of them are, are very early in their journey. Let's talk about that. So you know, it's a journey, right? This whole thing. Yeah. AI doesn't. You can't. It's you know, like it's like uh, content. Once you start, you got to keep going at it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what would you say are kind of like the main inhibitors towards adopting an AI-enabled enterprise? Uh, I'd say data is always number one. You know, data is. I've heard it described in various ways here gold, the new oil, you know, without good data, you're going to struggle to, to do AI well. Machine learning algorithms, they rely on learning these patterns, they're learning things that have happened in the past. So you need to be collecting that, managing it sensibly. Uh, the other thing is skills. A lot of these companies uh, either don't have the skills internally or are slowly building that up. They're focusing on sort of small individual pieces. They're not sort of feeding it up into the wider strategy. And I'd say actually, communication this is a thing i see time and again a lot of the work in ai is done by data science groups small technical groups working together maybe without some of the domain knowledge to really make it work when it when it's actually put into practice so i think those are the things that are stopping it uh, you know get the, the uptake that might have been expected and it's the onus is on us to deliver solutions that, that makes it easier for the customers to just say hey well, we've been collecting this data. You've got our data in a lot of cases. You know, you are a system of record. Um, show us how we can use this. How how's it going to benefit us? Show us some case studies for you know how it's going to you know make us more money or, or save us time. Um, and and a lot of the the situation at the moment is companies asking those questions mm. and saying, okay, we've we've had the hype. Now now let's see you know yeah. where's the, where's the proof. 
cool. So I was once uh, described talking about things you hear in the sector. Yeah. You know? yeah. I was once told that uh, data or big data is like teenage sex. Everyone's talking about <laughs> it, but no one's doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm not wanting to take the analogy any further. In a way, they, you know, ev- everyone is probably collecting it in, in vast amounts, but they're either not storing it correctly or they're not doing the next stage basically but that's where i was going right because, yeah you know especially in the enterprise they've got so much data exactly so how do you even begin to decide what's good as an input into an ai algorithm or program or a machine learning instance and what's bad yeah so uh, you know we need to work closely with our customers to understand what is it they're trying to do where they're where they're having pain where they where they want to do things faster um, where you know potentially there are new avenues of business and then we we look at the data we've got we can work with them to understand well do you have it in the right form now here's what you'd need to do to go about it so starting with the use cases I think is important you always need that end goal in mind if you just start with the data it's very easy to sort of be overwhelmed and, and not go not be able to you know, know where to go with it. So working closely with our customers is key and then developing, prototyping, iterating, you know, quickly but effectively, right? So we have to build things that we can get out there. So Absolutely. Well, let's talk use cases. I mean, obviously yeah. you've got some pretty incredible clients from my understanding in the, in the, in the defense, aeronautics sort of space. Yes. But pick one for me. You know, an enterprise client came to and said, hey, guys, IFS, help us out here. We want to be an, a- an AI-enabled enterprise and you consulted with them and delivered this amazing outcome. Can you give us an example? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I think there's elements that we've already delivered and elements that we're delivering where we're, where we're very strong and we've done a lot of work is in our optimization capabilities. A lot of our larger enterprise companies, uh, if we think about in aerospace, for example, in maintaining aircraft, uh, they have these maintenance schedules they have to draw up in advance, very complex, very technical. They need to position technicians in the right place, parts, etc. It's a very complex problem to get right. Now, we've been using AI to help with that, to assist with that for a number of years. We're, we're a leader in that space. Um, but it's very much in terms of, well, here are the things we need to do. Now go away and how can we do them most efficiently? So what we're doing is rolling that back a bit earlier and saying, well, even before you give us a list of here are the things to do, here are the things that actually we think are going to happen. We think that this aircraft, based on its maintenance history, based on um, you know data we're getting from sensor readings, it's going to need maintenance much sooner than you think. In fact, the chance of it needing maintenance in the next week or so is, is very high. So we can't tell you for sure that you've got to take it out of service now. But you need to start thinking that. So if we start feeding that into our jobs, we're saying, you know, these are all our aircraft. These are the chances they're going to need work over the next week, two weeks. Feed that into a schedule and then work out how best to send all our technicians, our parts around. That's already quite a fundamental shift. We've shown a big improvement in yep. terms of how effective that can be. I saw a crazy stat yesterday um, here at one of the stands in London Tech Week that, that, a, that a flight, I can't remember how long the flight was, but a single flight can produce eight terabytes of data. Yes. That's insane. It, absolutely crazy. So that's the point, right? It's like, yeah, it's yeah. like well, you build in some AI algorithms on top of that to start to be able to predict things like, you know, uh, service time or whatever the case is, or maybe bending of blades. I don't know, anything that could effectively enable a more smooth, efficient operation. That That's right. And I think, you know, it's being clever with the data as well. All that sensor data you're gathering is, is absolutely vital for making these predictions. 
but the other data that we have as a you know system of record we understand the contractual maintenance histories we understand what's gone wrong in the past so it's not just the data on its own but it's joining that data to create the full picture basically yeah. that's where we we can add the most value so it's overlaying different data sets to create insights Ex exactly and that's that delivery, the you know, bringing the data sets together, delivering insights in in an effective way, in an understandable way, that's what we are trying to do. Basically, we don't want to be the ones who are, and we're not going to be the ones who are creating the new algorithms. There's plenty of that out there, but bringing it all together in a way that's going to help the businesses, that's absolutely what we want to be doing. Okay. What does AI in the enterprise look like in 12 months from now? Is it Are we going to be kind of having a similar discussion next year at London Technique? Or do you feel that on the, based on the data and the engagements that you have at an enterprise level and in the context of AI, what do you see coming out that's changing? Uh, I see it being a lot less siloed. So I still think, certainly in a lot of industries, it's very much in proof of concept mode, right? We take a problem. We, we do uh, we do analysis on it, we get the data, we, we prove something can work, great, you know, that's fine. But then we have to go away and implement that. Where I see it's going in 12 months time is much more a focus on end-to-end, -end. so bringing in some process automation, saying this is what a human would do if, you know, this uh, we get this reading in from a sensor that's going to raise uh, a job order here and it's going to mean that a technician has to go there. We can automate parts of that process. We can add machine learning into it. It's much more about taking the full use case and doing the automation end to end, often with a human in the loop. You know, this is not complete automation. It's often about giving the human uh, either you know, more powerful output they can deal with or allowing them to focus their time on higher priority activities. Uh, that's where I think the enterprise AI enterprise is going to be going. It's, it's this end to end focus rather than this very siloed, data science or data lab approach, which can be hard to actually get things up yeah. and running. So a lot of CEOs uh, talk about RPA, robotics process automation, yeah. you know, the the automation of the enterprise essentially through AI as you touched on. Yeah. Uh, do you feel that, you know, we're ever going to get to a point where an, an enterprise would be, you know, fully automated? And what do you think the implications are for CEOs, right? Yes. Trying to work out, well, what workforce do I need to employ in the context of that automated enterprise? Yeah, I mean, I think without doubt, it's gonna change the way businesses operate. I mean, it changes the way, uh, as an ERP vendor, that we think about how uh, users interact with our product, right? It's no longer about the number of users because as we automate processes, you might have fewer users, but they're using new services or they're, they're using the cloud to, to take advantage of algorithms or processing capability. Um, so it can open up sort of new business models, new revenue streams, new ways of thinking about things. In terms of the actual workforces, um, I still think we're a long way from uh, you know, full automation because there's a lot of domain-specific knowledge that you need at either end of the process. Um, you know, Both in terms of the data that's going in, shaping the problems, shaping how those algorithms are going to feed off, off the data, and also what's coming out having it in a way that's going to be able to feed up from the technical level to the sea level in a way that people are going to understand. And I don't see those problems going away anytime soon. So I think we're still going to have a lot of augmentation of human capabilities for a number of years. Um, and we'll see people move away from the more mundane, repetitive tasks, even quite skilled model building tasks, to more domain specific knowledge around the periphery. Amazing stuff. Let's wrap this up. Okay.
Why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning to go and kick ass and take names in the AI for enterprise space? <laughs> I mean, you know, for me, I, I come from a very technical background. Uh, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated by the algorithms themselves and how they go about doing things and how we can take advantage of data that's coming out. Um, you know, well, that's you know prevalent in society these days. But the thing I noticed from this technical background was there's just not as many people as you'd expect trying to straddle that application versus data border, if you like. I think uh, in terms of the skills we have in workforce, there's a lot of people in the data science side of things, a lot of people in the business side. Bringing that together, uh, you know, that's what I love doing. I love identifying problems, thinking about how we can use tech to solve those. Um, you know, that, that, that's what really sort of drives me on. Awesome stuff. Bob Deco, thanks for being the State of X. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cool. Technology enables us to go further than we have ever imagined before, and it allows us to pioneer new and effective solutions to complex problems in all industries around the world. There are countless advancements taking place that are improving the quality of life for those who are in need of innovative technology solutions, particularly in the realm of healthcare. Access to vital information and global research, combined with the rapid advancement of technology, has led to a more holistic understanding of medical conditions and ailments. In the light of this newfound knowledge and technological capability, massive strides are being made in assisting patients with conditions like Parkinson's disease, where those inflicted suffer from immense shaking and hand tremors, making it almost unbearable to complete even the simplest everyday tasks, like eating a meal with utensils or drinking a cup of tea. I spoke to the founder and CEO of Gyro Gear, Phi Ong, who has developed their flagship product called the Gyro Glove, which aims to give those 200 million sufferers of Parkinson's a way to stabilize their shaking hands in order to give them a new grip on life. Hey guys, welcome back to State of X on Prime. With me today, I'm very privileged and honored yep. to have with me clearly a man and a legend. Thank you <laughs> very Yong. much. Phi <laughs> right. Yong from uh, Gyro Gear. Welcome Thank you, to sir. the show. Sure. So, lift your hand if you don't mind. Right. Uh, this is called the Gyro Glove. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've just mm -hmm. worn it and my hand is still tingling. Yep. Uh, it is an incredible innovation in the health sector. Yep. Please just give us the headline. What is the Gyro Glove and what problem is it solving? Right, so the Gyro Glove is a gyroscope based uh, stabilizer for people with you know, Parkinson's disease and such a tremor. So there's about 200 million people globally with uncontrollable sort of uh, hand tremors. So that's like when you. Just yes. your hands uncontrollably shaking, yes, right? Yes. But not just your hands, also, right? Is it your legs as well? Or? Uh, it can affect different parts of the body. But so main, mainly, mainly the it's, hands. Yeah? It traditionally uh, affects the hands, and for example, in case of a central tremor, it starts with one side and moves on to the other. Okay, fantastic. So we just had a look at one of your product videos, sure. uh, which was an incredible uh, story of, uh, mm -hmm. of people who live with these uncontrollable hand tremors. And yes. They're trying to make you know something as basic as yes. a cup of tea. Yes. Right. And so that must be very frustrating. It is, and so. But, but the good thing now is that we've actually come to, we've gotten to a stage where, for example, our volunteers come in. So we work with about three, four hundred sort of volunteers, and they're able to have lunch with us. And you know, when they realize that, oh my goodness, I've not been able to, for example, eat soup or you know, eat, I mean, eat peas, they actually start tearing up. And, and for us, that's a magical moment you mm. see. Yeah, that must make you feel really good about yourself, right? Uh, more relieved actually, because there's been really, a lot, yeah. there's been a lot of you know, hard work by an entire team, to, you know, to make sure that you know you have a safe but more importantly, an effective sort of unit uh, just on the back of your hand, you see. Okay. And every component that we can talk about later is actually, uh, we think in our minds, uh, a significant breakthrough. 
right what well, just no it's incredible so your hand shaking and this glove essentially are, can you just explain how this unit yes. here actually yes. works what is it doing so what what we have inside is uh, it's it's very similar to you know the tops that children play with or used to play with. Uh, so they, as 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 these spinning tops try to stay upright, and when you try to push them down, they basically try to fight fight back. Okay. It's the same concept. So inside we have a, a disc spinning at you know a very high speed. We can't say how how, how fast at this moment, uh, and it actually is uh, coupled mechanically to the hand. And it's all balanced, um, you know, using lasers and a lot of cool stuff. Okay. So, <laughs> what's your background, and how did you get to this point? Because it's mm. it's quite an amazing uh, health tech innovation. Sure. So I so I ran medicine uh, here in the UK, and I also trained uh, under a, a professor called uh, Jeffrey Karp at uh, Harvard MIT, and so. He, we, I mean, so when I was, when I was over in Boston, we basically focused on regenerative medicine, medical devices, stem uh, cell therapy, and so that plus the sort of uh, the the patient, the first patient I saw when I was in medical school. Uh, when we combined that together, that uh, I mean, that really focused everything on developing a simple, elegant solution uh, for this condition. It's amazing. So, how much R and D time went into something like this? So we started. I mean, in, I mean, the effort started in earnest in April 2016. So that's when we incorporated. And uh, for example, in order just to get this um, this unit balanced, we've had to be able to you know to take you know technology. Again, I can't specify technology from disparate industries, and to to ensure that this unit alone is balanced to about I would say over a hundred times more more finely than a satellite. What? Yeah. No way. Yeah. That's. I mean, when we. We actually, when we got reports as to how 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 high a grade of balance we got, we were actually quite shocked. <laughs> that's 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 a hundred times more balance. How does it one even try and tackle a problem like that? So again, you know, it's 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 we've had. So the key thing is that no one person has uh, has knowledge in order to you know has 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 necessary knowledge. So we've gotten, for example, people. Uh, our engineering director, you know, he's he was a tech director, the largest uh, uh, supercharger manufacturer. And then, of course, we have other people who, for example, work with lasers, who work with you know, sort of uh, fine sort of uh, rotational sort of um, engineering. Yep. And so you put these guys in a room, and they basically can figure out again how you actually you know get such a small system safely in the back of your hand. And the more most and most importantly, it has to be able to last you know at least three years basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell me something. You know, as I, I assume you're a startup still, or are yes. you beyond that? Okay. Uh, Oh, we're still You're scaling up. Scaling up. Scaling up. Okay. Yes. So, did you bootstrap this? Talk to, talk to us about how do you fund an innovation like this? Obviously, you have a great yes. team. You yes. have a great. You know, you understand yes. the space. You're a doctor by trade. Sure. So, talk to us about funding a, a product like this. What have you learned? So, I think the most important thing is that we we're absolutely grateful to both the British government and the EU, European Commission because they funded us to to a, a good few million basically, and that basically has kept all the powder dry, so to speak. And we've been able to, you know, go, f you know, very, very quickly from a concept. Again, putting in um, all that sort of precision engineering into this. Again, I mean, it's, it's a simple concept, but the iteration is massively tedious, you see. Mm. And then, and all that support from these two bodies has been has been wonderful. Mm. Yeah, amazing. Mm. You, uh, we've been engaging quite a lot with the Department of International Trade here. They've been instrumental oh, yes. in. Uh, they have been fantastic because yeah. they've, they've, I mean, they as 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 a unit. Have always been there to give us uh, support and guidance as to how how to export, who you should be looking for, and we know by the time we get to market, again we have the entire set of, um, well, I would say the British uh, governmental service at our back, which is fantastic. <laughs> uh -huh, yes. It is. So tell me, is there any AI in this? At this point in time, we can neither confirm nor deny this. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can say. Good answer. Yeah, 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 yeah. At an AI conference. Yep, no AI. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> so tell me something. Um, looking back at mm. your journey to date, yes. 
what stands out for you as a key lesson or is there something that you would do differently the, the key the first the most important lesson is that you have to care enough and that's how we hire people so again for example bringing people into the business that is the most important factor i would say of running this entire enterprise because if you i mean all of this here engineers medics uh, you know commission directors all of us have given up a very lucrative career in order to be able to work on this and the thing is you don't stay you don't put in your efforts and we people wonder why we work weekends why do, why we work you know till, till late at night it's because you know we want to deliver something uh, that is of value to people and that is and that is what distinct because there are always be technically competent individuals but whether or not you can put in the extra you know extra, extra bit just to make this really special i think that's important yeah. and it shows when you actually work with your with your customers when they come in let's say on saturday or sunday and again they have that lunch and they do testing with you they come all the way down you see but are you able to be able to provide that uh, the responsibility and the integrity in, the, in, in developing your product yeah i love what you just said because mm. it's an interesting thing in the sector that we play in which is technology yes. right or edtech health yes. tech edutech yes. etc um do you feel like as a community mm. we care enough that it, we care about different things you see and again you know i mean right now in the news of course we see the the whole issue of, of uh you know um you know very uh well non appropriate of news you see yeah, and that's that's one way to put it and what are we what are we what are we looking for are we targeting to maximize our financial value are we looking to target in our case for example to maximize our sort of uh, user value and you know we think that as as a company if you focus on your customers and you're actually very very sincere in producing the best products for them everything else will follow you see and i think that confusion is is unfortunately a product of our times yeah absolutely right so that is where i think you know if people realize that hey what if we actually you know stopped thought about how to better you serve our, our users a, a bit more rather than just blindly cheese uh you know the, the, the dollar signs so to speak mm-hmm. i think that actually you know counts intuitively gets you your your financial backing anyway yeah but it's kind of like what amazon's done really well mm-hmm. right they've uh, pursued vision and growth over yes. short-term profits yes. And yes. that's what's made them a trillion-dollar market cap company, right? Yes. Yeah. So, all right. But anyway, I mean, horses are horses. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's wrap this up. Tell me sure. something. Um, what does the future look like? I mean, you mentioned 200 yes. million people around the world. Yes. That's just a huge number. Yes. Yes. What does this product look like in, say, three years' time? Three years' time. So, I mean, right now we're already working on, on. I mean. Uh, following on your question just now we're working on intelligent versions i mean we have all the data we're already you know determining for example uh, how the data is correlated with you know disease state again i can't give any uh, too much detail um and you know we have a huge range of other applications and uh, not just in medicine that you know, where this technology is absolutely applicable to and we have had industry partners come down again you know as we talked about before this interview the key thing is just a focus do one thing right first make sure that that's done properly and in three years time have a competent intelligence sort of unit and then that's able to adapt you know intelligently with, with, with the with the individual amazing yeah why do you do what you do what gets you out of bed in the morning again it's you know it's it sounds really cheesy but it's back to that that the ability to care mm-hmm. you so when i signed up for for medicine i mean my so i had options to go on to phd programs again out in boston uh, for face transplant research so that was my clinical interest uh, plus surgery and facial sort of reconstruction and my entire my entire career was basically going through that you see i mean and, and but 
it came to a point where, I mean, aside from investors and, and the government saying that you have to be full-time, it came to a point where you have to decide. When you say that you want to help as many people as best as possible at your medical interviews, do you really mean that or not? Yes, so, you know, if it could just be a passing statement, but if you really actually act on it, then you have to decide and focus on what could help as many people as best as possible. So that's the reason why I get out of bed every single day. Well, this is proof of that. 100%. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Bayong, you're a legend, thank mate. You, thank and I you wish you much. all the very best. We'll need it. Thank you very cool. much, sir. Cheers, guys. All right. Thank you. Oculus Rift, Samsung Gear VR, Google Cardboard, and River VR. These are names you may have heard about by now. But if you haven't tried virtual reality since that one arcade in the 80s, be ready to be blown away by how far the technology has come. Putting a VR headset over your eyes will leave you blind to the current world, but will expand your senses with experiences within. You might even find yourself on top of Mount Kilimanjaro, on a roller coaster, fighting zombies, or as in the case of the Leicestershire Fire and Rescue Service, an immersive VR experience designed to accelerate and improve the training of firefighters right across the United Kingdom. Over the years, a lot has been said about the real-world use cases for exponential technologies like VR. And to demystify exactly where we are with VR technology adoption, I spoke to Paul Spate, the project lead and watch manager at the Leicestershire Fire and Rescue Service. Hey guys, welcome back to State of X. With me today, I have the privilege and honor of meeting and talking to Paul Spate, who is from the Leicestershire Fire Department and the National Program. National Virtuality Lead for the UK Fire Service. Which is an amazing title. Did you like National Program Lead for Virtual Reality for the Fire Service of the UK? That's, that's an incredible statement. I mean, talk to us about VR and the role of VR as you see it within the fire service in the UK. Yeah, well, v VR, I, I always say to people, will VR change the way humans learn? I think it will. And when I do my talks and demonstrate to people, I said, this is the training of the future. I'll cross that out now because the training of the future is here. This is it. <laughs> yeah, it is. You've, you've had a go. And yeah, it exactly. Is, I did. It is, it's, what we're trying to do is not replace our training because we still have to do the hot fire training. Yeah. But what it's going to do, it's going to supplement it in a blended learning approach. So if we go into the virtual world to do some training, if we make a mistake, no one gets hurt. We press reset, we do it again. So we get the procedures right. When we get the procedures right and all the, all the kind of uh, the thought processes right and the muscle memory, then we move on to do it for real. And when we do it for real, there's far more benefit of that training because you're not going through the mistakes you've already made in the virtual world. You know, and one of the biggest things around the virtual, we eliminate, I'd say, virtually all the risk. So yeah. you know, you're in a sterile environment. You're not going to injure yourself unless you trip over your own feet. Yeah. <laughs> we, can't, <laughs> we can't do nothing about that. And I know quite a few people who would do that. But, uh, but yeah, but it's a nice sterile environment, and they get the they get the kind of everything, the procedure right, and then they go and do the training for real. Yeah, you know, I just think this is the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's it's on fire, but police, ambulance. They're all going to be looking at this because we work together at so many different incidents. So we can train together in the virtual world, which at the end of the day, it's going to benefit the members of the public because our procedures and when we get on site to an incident, we're going to be so in sync. You know, it's going to save vital time. And when it comes to saving lives, you know, That's what you need, right? seconds count. So um, let's talk about the simulation that I've just experienced. So um, it's a fire 
that has happened with a contained fire, obviously, and then my job is a fire investigator, right? So yep. that's pretty much what we're trying to do. So I'm trying to go through this virtual uh, reality environment to understand, well, where, why did this fire occur? And to yep. create evidence, locking, and all that kind of stuff, essentially to enable the process that you guys have defined for a fire man. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we go firefighters now. It's nice oh, and easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. You don't no, even know. No. Hashtag me too. Just saying. Yeah. Well, <laughs> when I joined, it's five firemen. When I joined, and kind of now there's just as many female firefighters. So yeah. yeah. Okay. That's, firefighters, basically, yeah. right? Yeah. Cool. So I mean, what has the adoption of this kind of technology been like? To start with, there's always the sceptics. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I've been on a kind of the last 18 months. I've been on a journey. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you call it? <laughs> yeah. You know, a crusade. <laughs> you know, and I'm one of these people, no doesn't offend me. Oh, it's yeah. a challenge. I'm the same. I'm yeah. the same. If they say no, there's got to be a reason. So you find out what the reason is and, and work then, around it. Yeah, here's, here's why that's incorrect yes. in whatever the case is. But yeah. I suppose you really have to drive this agenda, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, so when you, when you, what did, what did you find the most challenging aspects of putting a technology like this into such a prestigious and important service in the UK? Getting the money. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, because when I made the link through virtual reality and what I was doing with my investigation, yeah, I thought, yeah, this, this is brilliant. This is this is going to answer some really, really good questions for us when it comes to training. Uh, but it was getting, we got a proof of concept. We worked with kind of River. We, we made a proof of concept. Uh, we call it the Corvus Suite, which is a hosiery factory in Leicester, which is a arson hotspot. And we recreated that with some great interactions just to show how good VR is. And we took that on a tour around all fire services. And uh, the interest was there, but everyone's evidence to prove it works mm. yeah we're in the process of now doing evaluation on it mm. i know it works you know our instructors who've seen it knows it works but we just need to get that evidential kind of paper basically to say the learning does happen so we're working on that but the the environment itself because it's fire investigation you know you've gone into a scene which as we speak there's people in that scene in derbyshire from leicester and derby fire training Oh, really? In that exact scene, but they can't do what you've done. You you have the ability to take things out. They can't because there's another course next week. Oh, yes, so if course. you destroy the scene, yeah. they haven't got a scene to work with. Yeah, they've got to recreate it all the time. It's yes. more cost, it's more time. Oh, of course. Yeah. You've got to do another burn, which isn't yeah. green. You're putting all the stuff in the yeah. atmosphere. Yeah. We've recreated it. So every student now has the ability to go into a thorough investigation, then watch the fire afterwards to see if their hypothesis, how it started, is correct. And when they finish, we press reset. And, and the next student gets it all the same. Yeah. How good is that? I know. Brilliant. You know, how come they not like it? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, um, Paul, in your view, what do you see the other applications of VR being in UK uh, health services or just UK services yeah, well, in general? We're, we're using it for fire investigation. I saw, I won't mention companies, but I, I was, was privileged to see a demo the other week. I'll have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Never signed one of them before really? in my life. Yeah. That means you're going places, Paul. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sat. <laughs> no. um, and, and they showed me this, and it was it was to do with armed response in the UK. Oh, really? And, and they showed me their proof of concept. I didn't know at the time it was proof of concept, and it was an early edition. Mm. And I put the headset on, and I went into a world which was totally unbelievable. What will describe it to us? I was, I put a headset on. If you were the, the 
the chap from the company who got headset on, I was looking at a fully armed police officer. Really? And that's what he saw the same in me. And huh. we were talking together. We were in a 10 metre square area. Oh, okay. We did use the Vive, but it's wireless. Yeah. So there's no cables. Yeah. And it was, so I so said 10 metres is a massive area to, I say play in, but it's not play, train, learn. Um, and we was in a warehouse and we were carrying guns. The weight was the same. They've got a compressed area, so when you fired, it recoiled. Really? And there's targets popping up. Uh-huh. And you're shooting targets, and the accuracy was spot on. So in theory, then, you could apply any real-world scenario into the digital environment. <laughs> yeah. With a, effectively, to enforce training in such a manner that it's consistent. Yes, everyone gets the same training. Yes. And that, that's the beauty. And I've said to the, the NSCC National Fire Chiefs Council, I've addressed the chiefs, and I've spoke at kind of various meetings, and I said, the beauty of this technology, if all the services in the UK take it on board and we develop fire investigation, if they all take it on board, what you're doing, you standardise training nationally, just like that. And then if I want to transfer to Scottish Fire to work, you know, it's all transferable because yeah. we all use the same training. Uh-huh. You know, how much money would it save? How much time would it save? You know, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't like to put a, a, an amount on how much money it can save. You know, Hopefully, I've, put, I've mentioned today, well, sorry, yesterday when we, we opened, we had uh, the member of parliament, Nick Hurd, came and he came to the stand and he's the Prime Minister. So he's answerable to the Prime Minister and he came and he saw that picture, the VF4 360 film. That was our first look at virtual, kind of virtual fatal four, VF4. It's a road safety film which has gone all over the world. Completely so, free. He saw that, yeah. and he come in. Understand? He said, oh, I remember that, and I went, "Sir, that is fantastic." I said, "You saw that two years ago. It's a safety film. Will you remember it?" I said, "That's how good this is." Mm. And I said, "What are you going to try now? We'll blow that out of the water." And he had a go, and I'm really, really pleased because he stayed in the scene for at least ten minutes, and then afterwards he spent ten minutes quizzing me, and every time I answered a question, he hit me with another question, trying to find out more and more. You know, because it looks like he's seen the massive benefits. And he's, he's at the top. You know, yeah. I can't get any higher than him. And if he's now saying this is good, mm. hopefully it'll filter down. That's so it's such an important point. You know, you've got to get leadership to buy into the, yes. to the idea. You yes. know? And that's probably half the job of any you know, CEO. I'm changing the context a little bit. Yeah. But any leader you know, or person of interest trying to sell something new like VR as an innovation yeah. into something like that's established and legacy in financial. Yeah. And that's the fire service for you. We are very much traditional. Yes, you know, that's that's what's beautiful about yes. what you do. Yeah, we've got our we've got our tried and tested world class training methods, and I think they're brilliant. I'm I'm what they're calling the fire service because I'm like nearly 30, 30 years end of this month I've done, wow. and I can retire. I'm not, so this is this kind of great project. But I've done all the training, you know, and it's fantastic. I love putting a breathing apparatus set, set on and going into a firehouse and putting out a hot fire, but People look at me and they class me as a dinosaur. <laughs> I'm old school. And I'll put my hand up, yes, I am. But all of a sudden I've seen something which is modern, this modern emerging technology, and they see how enthused I am when I talk about it. Yes. And people go, well, look at his age. I'm not, I'm not that old. But they say, look, look at his age. And he's going on about new emerging technologies. And people are kind of starting to understand that, you know, it's not about putting breathing apparatus on, going into hot fire, it's about the quality of the training. And the quality you can do in VR, because you can manipulate it, you can change the environment. We can put people in the virtual world in hazardous 
situations we could never ever do for real just because of the danger yep. you could do it in VR so when they face it for real you know they've got that muscle memory they've got that procedure embedded so I'm a massive believer that if you want to learn learning by doing experiencing is far better than someone stood on the stage I say preaching but powerpointing you know I spoke at events and people say it was powerpoint I switch off you know, cause or just reading a book Yes. You know, this is a picture by picture guide like it's not the same as doing no. it yourself right? if you experience it you're going to remember it and the better the experience like I just put that smoke smell under your nose you smell smoke that was a very uh, powerful smell I don't, I don't know how you even recreate burning I'm, smell I have no idea in a spray can yes <laughs> we, we, we just spray it into the lid now and let people smell because the first time we used it I went like that and the whole place stunk for hours <laughs> people were going by go something's burning yeah. no no it's all right it's just a fire service well I would love to ask you about River so I know they're your partners yeah. in this what do you look for in a technology partner what's one, most important to you in a context like this I'd say one they've got to have the, the expertise you know with great subject matter experts yeah. you know we can put the scenes together we can set the fire put it out but then we need the experts to come in and recreate it oh, I've worked with River three three or four years now and we're mates and I think that's a, a big thing I mean they're here helping me you know I did my talk on the stage they helped me you know they're a private company you know their benefits are there at a show like this but you know they help me I help them and that's how it works but they're very good at what they do I'd imagine there are other companies out there which are just the same but they reached out to me four years ago and said they could help me with that film about synchronizing all my headsets and there was no cost and they've helped me for nothing it's kind of that started a friendship and it's just kind of blossomed is that the right word yeah. <laughs> blossom no. is the right yeah. word relationship yes. to blossom yeah and um, and yeah and, and it's good you know they've they've, they've done gone on and done other stuff now they've done stuff for the police crime scenes you know uh, they worked with dsdl ministry of defense you know and it's all come from the relationship we've had together and we've met the same people you know, some benefit me and help me, some benefit them and help them. And I think that's what it's about. I love that sentiment. Paul, let's wrap this up. Nice segue into this final question, which is why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? This, I've been in the fire since 30 years at the end of this month. This has infused me. I am absolutely wowed by this technology. I haven't got a clue how it works. <laughs> I can set it up and put people through it. I don't know nothing how that works them guys put it together you know and it's like my, my wife hates it <laughs> I go home and talk about it all the time I'm yeah, like yeah, yeah. Work. I'm like all I talk about is VR you know and my biggest kick is showing people it they take the heads off they all have a big smile on the face and then the second biggest kick I love standing on the stage telling people you know I don't know if I'm a good presenter or not I enjoy it and I smile and the audience like today it was full and they were like four or five deep at the back so obviously they must like what i'm saying you know yeah. i mean I was, today i did a live demo so i put a headset on and talked them through some of the investigation i was half expecting when i took this mask off there were more to gone <laughs> you know, because if i was in the audience i would have said when he's got the headset on, let's all go yeah exactly <laughs> you would think that though right it yes. is totally immersive yes and that's what's amazing about it paul spade thanks for being on the show no it's been a pleasure the advancement in technology has been exceptionally fast in the 20th and 21st century, with electronic technology and machines being produced and improved all the time. 
it was very likely that along with the positive aspects of these new advancements, people would also consider the negative aspects and look to criticize new technology. Every day, another company brings out something more advanced in an attempt to win the consumer war against another company. This consumerism is driving the rate of advancement faster and faster each year. 5G is generally seen as the fifth generation cellular network technology that provides broadband access via mobile device. To put that in perspective, 5G will enable data transfer speeds in gigabits per second. Some have questioned the health and environmental impacts of this technology, whilst others have lauded the business opportunities that 5G will realize, especially when combined with cloud computing. These technologies will change the way we live and work, so who better to talk to on the topic than the general manager and CIO of IBM, Michael Velocki. Did that work? Yeah, sounds good. And your surname, Michael? Veloki. 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 Michael Veloki. Veloki. Okay. And you're the Chief Innovation Officer at IBM. No, no. Chief Innovation Officer of the IBM Vodafone Venture. Okay, cool. I'll just ask you to yeah, that, let me, yeah. jump in and yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to hack that one. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay, ready? Okay. Okay, cool. Hey guys, welcome back to State of X. Today, I'm privileged and honored to have Michael Veloki from IBM with me on the show. Yeah, great to be here. Great to be here. So, Michael, what do you do exactly at IBM? Yeah. So, that's always a hard question. I know. So, yeah. It's a hard, tough one. <laughs> yeah, so I, so I just took over a role um, about four months ago, um, co-leading and being chief innovation officer of a site venture we're doing with Vodafone Business and IBM, focused on cloud and connectivity. Okay, cool. So. Well, let's demystify X, cloud and connectivity. Yeah. So, what is the state of cloud and connectivity as you see it today in yeah. your in your privileged position? Yeah, so I, I think it's actually a redefinition of, of a value chain. Mm. So, when we talk about value chain, sometimes we talk about, well, the application through this. This actually, what we're doing with cloud and connectivity is a definition from a device all the way through a user experience and everything in between it. And what I mean by that is I've got cloud at the center, but also I have I have to connect it. I need network. I need software-defined network as well. And even more importantly, what happens when 5G comes and the whole thing fits together? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot of talk about 5G and what this and what 5G can promise. Yeah. There's also a lot of deterrence around that. I think there was even some hashtags going around in social media saying like 5G is bad, basically, right. whatever yeah. that means. Yeah. I mean, what can we look forward to for 5G? I'm very much a proponent on the iterations of technology. Yeah. Right. This being an entirely new generation, right? And right. Connectivity, right. hence 5G. <laughs> right. Well, and, and you go back to my my point on on the device all the way through the customer experience. If I throw 5G in, if you think about like a retail example now, is you and I might shop for some furniture off a Ikea or something like that. And we look at it and it's like, oh, it looks pretty good. 5G is gonna improve the latency to a point where it's like, oh, this couch actually looks phenomenal. Oh, in this lighting. Oh, and I can actually feel like it's there. Now, without 5G, I'd have to come in and build a really fancy network in your house. I don't have to do that with 5G, and all of a sudden I'm gonna build this latency all the way back to the consumer. Take the farmer example all of a sudden is, they can actually do some visual realization and some AI around crop planning and what ifs and all that. It's like, it actually is gonna open up a whole new realm of, of creativity. Yeah, 
Yeah. Can you dumb it down for, you know, potentially people keep hearing about 5G but don't truly understand what this new generation in the real world means? It's like science fiction to reality. Yeah, yeah. You know, can you paint a picture of reality in a 5G world for us? Just one, one example of that. Yeah, I, I think the, re- the reality is it's going to bring a, a visual realization into a consumer that you can't get now. So all of a sudden is the speed at which I can ingest data doubles, triples, quadruples. And then now I can innovate on top of that. So going back to the, the um, retail example, all of a sudden it's real, it's it's out there. Now, the one thing we can't forget is without, without some of the hybrid multi-cloud, without some of the software-defined network, this all becomes kind of a stranded investment. So it is, it isn't just a, a, if we just leave it the way it is, it just becomes science fiction and somebody will figure out to do what to do with it. But actually now, I can take all the data, I've got access to all these multiple cloud environments, it all fits together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was one crazy stat, apparently today on like a fiber line, if you download a movie, it'll take you about eight minutes. Yeah. On a 5G network, it'll take like 60 seconds. Yeah, and right, and you take that, but if we just leave it at that, it's going to be just a fancy consumer yeah. thing. Is actually businesses, if you take go back to that end-to-end value chain, if you plug that into that with a software-defined network, with the device, the end-user, hybrid, multi-cloud, all of a sudden I have a new end-to-end um, value chain that I can I can do innovation on. I can move and move and move and move. Okay, so, great. And, and that's the point is is 5G is just one of one of the technologies that's going to drive innovation. Okay, so um, you mentioned Vodafone earlier. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about that engagement as it relates to cloud and connectivity? Yeah. So, and I'm going to correct your words. Okay, great. Is, Thank you. Is it's actually a venture. Ah. So, so I'm I've got two roles. I'm a co-leader along with a an executive from my, from from Vodafone. So we've actually put our capabilities together in a venture, not a formal joint venture, okay. not a separate entity, but in a venture. So we're actually located in a separate office. We have our own, and you've seen it around here, we have our own garage. And yep. we're innovating and building solutions together. So we are taking their strength in, the, in and they actually have a very good cloud business. We're going to take their clients on a journey to cloud and then we're going to innovate for both of our clients um, so things like 5g things like software-defined networks so give you an example of something we're doing right now is we have a strong apple partnership vodafone has a strong apple partnership we have different apple partnerships we're building a mobile solution that includes devices the network our application development put together with industry expertise I couldn't do that without Vodafone Business. They can't do it without me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is, don't see this as a client-partner relationship. We don't see this as anything other than a venture. We live together, and frankly, we're going to grow together. What do you? What would you say to um, a CEO of a bank or a telco sitting in Africa right now, and he's hearing about 5G? He doesn't have the partner relationship no. that potentially you guys do. What is your words of wisdom to him, or a piece of advice? as it relates to 5G and the innovation opportunities in that yeah. particular context. Yeah, and I would I would say don't think about it in isolation. Think about it as another 
opportunity to innovate on a platform. So think about the enhanced capabilities that you would have with that technology along with everything you're doing. Because I think the mistake people make make is, I'm going to have an AI department, I'm going to have a data department. Oh, now let me have a 5G department. That's wrong. It's all, it's all together. It just is one more piece of the innovation and technology puzzle. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so, last question for you. Why do you do what you do in this space? What gets you out of bed in the morning? To make a difference in the world. So, that starts with making a difference with our clients. I'm looking at some of the innovations we're talking about and go back to my agriculture example. We actually think with what we're doing, we might be able to improve crop yields by 30%. Might be able to reduce waste by 40%. That actually gets me out of bed in the morning because that has a significant impact on the world I'm gonna leave my kids. Yeah. So you know, that's really what gets me out of bed. And the, and the last thing I'll say is I get to innovate day in and day out. So that's actually probably the funnest. I probably have the fun, most fun job I've ever had in my career with this new venture. Michael, one last question I have to ask you. Loads of books being written about innovation. Yeah. What book in, about innovation have you gifted the most? Ah, that's a good question. Um, it's the... Um, it's a great question. Or a must-read. Yeah, a, a must-read is, is Simon, um, but is Think Fast. Think fast. That's and it's Simon Redrick. I forget his last name, but it's Think Fast because it's all about in larger corporations. How do you think fast and instead of acting slow? Fantastic, yeah. Michael. Thanks for being on the show. Great. Thank you. Yes, Bye. Thanks. The printing press is arguably one of the most disruptive innovations the world has seen. Its immediate effect was that it spread information quickly and accurately, and consequently, it took a hundred years for the world to fully ingest the impact of distributed information dissemination. But today the world is moving on to an exponential trajectory, meaning entire industries have only a matter of a few years to adapt to modern exponential technologies like artificial intelligence, blockchain, and robotic process automation. This underscores more than ever the need for companies to transform themselves from traditional ways of working towards innovative new business models, products, and services. So. What is the current state of digital transformation? Where does digital transformation start and where does it finish? So to gain an in-depth understanding on one of the industry's biggest buzzwords, I reached out to Lindsay Herbert, the author of the book, Digital Transformation, and the inventor and innovation leader at IBM. Hey guys, welcome back to State of X. Today, I'm privileged and honored to be joined by Lindsay Herbert the head of innovation and inventor at IBM. Is that I get that right? Broadly correct? Yeah, Sounds very important. <laughs> so uh, for our viewers who potentially don't really understand what does innovation and invention mean in the context of IBM, why don't you walk us through just the headline? What does it look like? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is with being an inventor is I actually literally invent things. So sometimes people wonder in today's day and age, do you actually still solder? Do you still write code as an inventor? And yes, you do. Oh, really? You still do the, the hard work. Um, and I think the advantage of being an inventor in the context of IBM is that I can take inventions that I work on myself and with others and put them into real environments, actually test them and see, you know, get them working in the real world. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the innovation leadership part of my role is actually finding other companies, other really clever, innovative startups and scale-ups and introducing them to IBM clients. because. Uh -huh. 
the nature of the world today is we have too many massive problems to solve. Yeah. No one company can solve them. Mm -hmm. It's about building an ecosystem of people who can collaborate together and tackle those major problems together. Um, and exactly, and it's about tackling the right problems, right? Because yes. you know, out of all the potential problems you can solve, like you tackle the right ones. I mean, this is more broadly about a digital transformation agenda, right? Yeah. You actually wrote the book on digital transformation towards the end of 2017. Um, I don't think digital transformation ever really stops no. anymore. I mean, it's like a journey that's, you know, you don't really get to the destination. Um, but do you feel that digital transformation is as important today as it ever was? So the way I define digital transformation is just being adaptive to change itself. Mm. And the reason that it's digital yeah. is because you can't be adaptive to change anymore without utilizing technology, without utilizing data. But fundamentally at its core, it's about people adapting to a changing world. And you're absolutely right. You have to keep adapting because change is not going to stop. It's just going to accelerate. So, you know, the book that I wrote and the work that I do in IBM is all about the how-to of innovation. So many people think that it's about being agile and doing design thinking and building a prototype and then bang, you're innovative. Yeah. But what they don't realize is you get to the end of that prototype and you've effectively built a doll's house and are expecting real people to be able to move into it. So how do you actually get from a cool idea to something that's scaled and useful and solving a worthy problem? That's a whole specialist field in itself, and that's what I that's what I do. And at the same time, not having the uh, corporate antibodies come and kill innovation, right? Because <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. the, that that's the biggest challenge. It's like yeah. you know, people love to talk about innovation. They love to talk about digital transformation, hackathons, and hackathons, and this and that. And it doesn't seem to really wind up anywhere. You know, it's like the corporate. Um, if you think about a corporate shareholder structure, right? So I'm motivated to give a return to my shareholders yeah. so why would I take you know a million pounds out of my PL and stick it into something innovative just to say that I'm innovative exactly and that's why part of my role and you know in working within the bigger IBM machine is in getting people who have those senior level positions to understand the real immediate threats to their livelihoods and their business and what to do about it in a more strategic level rather than just hosting a random hackathon which all that does is it gets those C-suite people thinking, oh great, so you've already solved the problem. Oh wait, it's going to cost another 200000 to actually get it to the point where it's usable? Let's do it next year. Uh -huh. you know? So that education process has to start much sooner and you also have to turn them into people who want to innovate. So many people have gotten to the top level of an organization by maintaining the status quo, by yep. being risk averse. Yeah, they don't want to risk their jobs, numbers. right? Exactly. And their updates of their Range Rover in 2020. Exactly, you know and so I mean? you need to help them understand the, the immediate and the near-term threats and opportunities so that they can see their own success in fueling something that otherwise they're just going to link to a different part of the business, the part of the business that's focused on digital experience. One of my most hated terms, digital experience, is if we all spend our lives just you know, using a single app and a single website, it's done. Uh -huh. uh -huh. I know, exactly. Hashtag digital experience. <laughs> so, no. no, yeah, exactly. But look, what do you say to the frustrated head of innovation, right, who, you know, um, is trying to get a established legacy business to innovate, to adopt, and even engage with startups, you know? Um, what do you say to them if they're sitting around going, I can't actually do this job, they love talking innovation, but they don't actually want to change. Yeah, you know, yeah. what kind of incentives 
or words of wisdom would you like to share with a frustrated innovation person? My, my book talks about five stages to do real innovation, and the first stage is about getting inspiration from outside the company. Too many companies focus entirely on what the company is already doing and just trying to optimize it. Having those arguments internally about, oh, we could be you know this many percentage points better if we just tooled this a little bit differently. They have to get the hard-hitting evidence, which is about a competitor doing it better and reaping the rewards, about a, a, another company that's serving the same audience but in a different way, and what the opportunities are there. It's about getting, bridging those gaps, showing that inspiration, and again, getting those leaders to go on that journey, uh-huh. and then the worst thing you could do is to skip that step and to go straight into prototyping, because yeah. you'll get nowhere. Yeah, I understand. So let's talk about startups. You know, there's loads yeah. of uh, people talking about, you know, startups are either going to eat corporate lunches, uh, and so therefore corporates need to be engaging with the startup community. Oftentimes, you know, at least in South Africa, our startups go to corporates to die. Yeah. You know, we've Wait had forever for. But no. do you find that? Do you find that also? Oh my God, yes. And then this idea of startups being a threat to big corporates? No, it's the other way around. Because you're right, a big corporate can waste a startup's time forever. Yeah. Just to get to a no, and then by that time the startup's gone bust. Yeah. Instead, corporates that want to leverage cutting-edge thinking from a company that could be a startup, they need to realize they have to work differently. You know, I did a great interview recently with the chief architect of HSBC about how they're working with startups, and he said they changed part of their procurement and their legal department to give a stepping stool to a startup to basically not get drowned in all the paperwork that normally comes with a procurement agreement with a big company like HSBC. Totally. So that's part of it. And then the other part of it is it's really more about the scale-ups you know, a true startup is someone that's trying to still sort out their business model and just, you know, they're still finding their footing. Really, the big corporates are more interested in the scale-ups, the ones who have one big client and are looking for more, have one market covered and are looking to expand to a new one. Yeah. And, and if the corporates don't work with the scale-ups, the scale-ups could be a threat to the corporates. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very interesting that, I mean... When, I mean, you basically do this as part of your mandate, right? Which is, oh, look, there's an innovative startup. Here's an IBM client. You meet you, and this is why. Exactly. You do yeah. matchmaking, essentially. Walk us through how you evaluate making the best connections possible. Okay. So the first thing for me, and the advice I always give to any startup or scale-up, is have a really concrete USB. Have one thing you do really well, and be able to prove out tangibly where you've done that and then only talk about that. You know, I've, I've been in the summit and I've seen so many great booths. The best booths for, for me are the ones that have a clear problem statement and solution, and the worst ones are the ones you look at and we're like, we do storage, we do cloud, we do this, we do this, and you just think, you don't know what, how to, you know, that's not a clear problem I can go out and find, you know, a solution to. So I think that's part of it. And then it's a case of articulating that problem. They might have solved it for one sector or one market, how can it be translated to an IBM client that absolutely needs that new technology or that approach has been developed, but that case study might not exactly match up? So how do you do that translation piece is yeah. the other part of that. Yeah. Yeah. So behind us here, we've got Startup Innovate, uh, which is a Canadian initiative. Um, you've and got, I'm Canadian. And you're Canadian, just happen to be Canadian, you know Perfect. what I'm saying? You know, match made in heaven here. Uh, but, um, you know, it's interesting looking about what we're talking about, and there's a whole bunch of startups pitching their stuff. You know, um, where does it fall flat for startups? So, startups, 
I've seen so many startup pitches, and the worst ones for me are they make two one of two mistakes. One is they spend too long talking about the big industry problem and the bigger picture problem they're trying to solve, and they waste all their time in the pitch and don't get to the thing about what they actually do. But then the other part is that they don't have a clear next step at the end. If you're a, if you're a small startup of just a handful of people, don't pitch to a giant company that you can take on a full account. Instead, have a really clearly articulated path that is practical for that bigger company to engage with you with, and make that really clear and defined in your pitch. And if you're pitching to a general audience, pitch to what your strengths and current capabilities are. Do not start talking about what's in the pipeline in terms of what you might be able to do if you got a huge round of investment in another six months of time. Yeah, just um, you know the statement that uh, venture capitalists back the jockey, mm. but they're gambling on the horse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is that equivalent statement in the corporate speak or corporate world when they're looking at engaging with startups? Are they looking to back the jockey? Are they looking to back the business case? What's there, the difference there? there? So from IBM's perspective, we want the, the actual clever solution. So we want the horse. If we don't have faith in the jockey, then it's a non-starter. Yeah. But I think the other piece of it is we need that horse to have proven it's already ran several races and won them because being able to just talk about the technology without being, I mean, IBM pitches for its work in the same way that anyone pitches for work. We show where we've done it before. So you need to be able to do that as well. And if there's a gap in what you say you can do and the work you've already completed, then you're not going to get the backing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Great points. So we're here obviously at London Tech Week 2019. Were you here last year? No, I wasn't. Fantastic. Even better. So, <laughs> but uh, looking around at you know obviously we, this is a very AI focused uh, you know day within the London Tech Week kind of you know week. Um, what would you say are some of the key trends? that executives, business leaders need to be paying attention to today and tomorrow? So the most important one is AI and the fact that AI right now is actually quite stupid. It Do you means, think that though? Yes. Is it really? Because everyone else here seems to have a different opinion. No, AI is quite stupid. When you consider what the general public thinks it's capable of. That's true. Exactly. And then That's you look true. behind the curtain. And you uh -huh. see that a lot of it is still being powered by either a mass amount of data being poured in to be able to get 90% accuracy, mm. or you've got a lot of clever data scientists working behind the scenes yeah. to tool things and, and optimize things. So AI has this massive potential to, to get to a point where it will be very smart and solving all sorts of problems with minimum human intervention. But we are in a point right now, defined as narrow intelligence, where if you don't have the right people working directly with the AI to train it and to train it on the right data, you're screwed. And so many of these projects are going ahead and you know and being accepted, you know, oh 90% accuracy. Well 90% accuracy is pretty dangerous when you think about some of the news stories that are already come have already come out about bias in AI producing terrible outcomes for people applying for credit cards or yeah. mortgages or criminals being decided about extending their sentence. You know, you see some of these headlines and you think, my God, the bias that's being built into these AI systems, but it's because people aren't getting more involved. They're leaving it to the data scientists and the computer scientists. There's a huge human element that needs to go into training AI and understanding how it needs to be applied. That's the trend that needs that, that 
C-suite and below, everyone needs to be paying attention to. Okay. And I, and I think there's another reason for it too, though, is that if you want your skills to be relevant in 10 years' time, yeah. you need to start building AI skills now. Yeah. Don't wait until it's so advanced that the computers don't need us anymore. <laughs> yeah, we want to avoid that situation. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, so, a couple more questions. So, how do you know which AI to trust? You know, we've, we've met loads of companies here all doing rad stuff in AI, right? So how do you know who is actually, you know, cooking the meat and who's leaving it a bit too rare for you? So I would say you never trust an AI, you trust the people that are, you know, and you trust the approach and the methodologies that's be, that are being used to develop it, to train it, and if you don't understand, and someone can't explain the how that sits behind their algorithm or their neural network, that's a red flag. Yeah. You, know, you definitely, it's still a very heavily, you know, like I was saying before, it's still all about the people. And if all you're seeing is the machine and you're not seeing the wizard behind the curtain, huh. that's a warning sign. Amazing. Lindsay, why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? So I've loved innovation since I was a little kid. I grew up in northern Canada with the polar bears and the uh -huh. northern lights and everything. And for me, innovating was a way of, firstly, getting me out of northern Canada in minus 50 <laughs> degree winters. Um, but also too, you know, like I, I'm someone who's just always excited by what what's possible. You yeah. know, I've never been someone who likes just accepting the status quo when I can see something that needs changing about it. And we are facing a world right now with major global problems. Mm. How could you not want to be an innovator? How could know. you not want to try to solve those? Absolutely agree. Yeah. Lindsay Herbert, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Matt. Awesome. Cheers. Cheers. Hey guys, so if you haven't done so as yet, why don't you head on over to Amazon Prime if you are in the USA or the UK. If you are in South Africa and you want to catch the footage of these interviews and some more exclusive content, head over to The Matt Brown Show on YouTube and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an x.com.